Teaching Channel Talks, one of my favorite things to do is to speak with expert educators about the most challenging issues in education. I'm your host, Wendy Amato, and this week I welcome Dr. Patrick Washington, founder of Man Up. Dr. Washington, you've described Man Up as a movement. Tell me more. Yeah, so we, we always envision our work uh, being a course about uh, increasing diversity at schools. Uh, but just looking through the lens of history, we recognize the power of men of color in those small, rural, segregated schools, many of which were started through churches and how those pioneers, if you will, um, were pillars in the community. They saw the work as uh, they saw the work of teaching and, and for some of them leading those schools as a means as a means to empower um, their own people to be the change agents that they wanted, uh, be the change agents that were needed at that time, particularly during the civil rights movement and even before. Uh, and so in, in the wake of all of the um, events of the last three to four years, uh, about the time that we started Man Up, uh, we recognized that there were some other real possibilities and importance for us to identify young men who wanted to teach, but also saw education and their presence in a school as a means to addressing some of the social injustices that we were seeing uh, in the justice system, but recognizing that a lot of those same inequities and injustices happen to happens in school happens in schools as well, especially for boys of color, which is why we have the school to prison pipeline. And so um, uh, it, it's a movement to address any any area of need that our men are passionate about beginning with education. But for some of our fellows who started nonprofits to work with kids after school, any myriad of possibilities that are going to help uplift our people and change our communities. That's why Man Up is a movement. I love the word movement because it implies something that's big. It has motion built into the word, and it certainly honors the legacy and the, the origins of, of your cause. How, how did you feel compelled to launch the Man Up movement? What moves somebody into action with the kind of passion that you've brought? Yeah, well, you know, Wendy, I've, I've always known that I wanted to be a teacher since I was like three or four years old. And mm -hmm. so, um, and coming from a family of educators, it was, a, it was um, I love it today just as much as I did when I was a three-year-old kid. I just, it's something about being in schools, being in classrooms, working with teachers and educators to make things better, to improve our practice every day. Am I, uh, am I supposed to picture you lining up stuffed animals and like, you know, all of that, directing whatever, the hey, lesson and getting your pets all lined up? It's been fun and focused. It's been uh, rigid yet without uh, feeling, um, uh, like military like, but it's been a place where kids can thrive and, and it took a lot of work and uh, a lot of learning on, on and connecting with uh, teachers and, and you know who I started with and uh, you know and I was like, how is it that after you know teaching for three years and, and I became a principal and a superintendent pretty quick compared to some others uh, path into ed leadership. And I was just struck by uh, one the idea that you know for many uh, of my colleagues, colleagues and friends and peers, teaching was not a, a career that was highly esteemed nor looked at as a, as a possibility for them. And in many instances, it was uh, seen as work that anybody could actually do. Uh, we, we still hear that. Yeah, we, and, and for me, I'm like, I, I like, I'm unapologetic about how I wanna win in schools like LeBron wants to win on the court. And I, I just believe that there are, you know, I know that there are other uh, men, I, because we have them in our program, who see the classroom, the school as a means to uh, transform the community and the world. 
education is nothing more powerful than that. And uh, to be a part of, uh, you know, a school where learning takes place at, at the uh, at every level for adults and kids, you know, it's something contagious about that. And I just uh, got busy about trying to find the other brothers out there who want to do it. I hear you choosing careful words that show balance. Uh, you talked about structure and flexibility. You've talked about work and something resembling joy in the learning process. Where, where are the greatest obstacles that you're overcoming in finding that kind of balance for learning? Ooh, the stress of, maybe, of, maybe I should say shame on me for, for focusing on obstacles. Maybe, no. maybe the question should be the other way. But I, I think it's actually either way you, you present it, you know, it, it, it's still, gonna, it, it's really an obstacle. I, I think there are many, especially now when you consider uh, the pandemic has um, not been friendly to any of us, particularly in the field of education where so many teachers are walking out every day. And uh, here we are on the other side of that uh, with open arms uh, beckoning young men of color to come in. Uh, and they're coming in uh, against more noise than there than, than, than existed before. Like, you know, the work is difficult, it's hard. You don't have the kind of community and parental support in some instances that they, um, that, you know, they, they may need and that we recognize to be important. And even at the school leadership level, school administrators are exhausted and they're tired. So it's like, how do we elevate and change the narrative, elevate the status of teaching such that uh, young men, young uh, as early as pre-K can see themselves in front of a classroom teaching and leading others? How do you do that in the, in the light of what is going on in our world with this pandemic and uh, such a mass exodus of educators? And for us, it is, you know, each one reach one. So all of our fellows recognize that, hey, you've been in a position to actually see teaching in a different light and you have the support of other men who are on this journey with you to make this thing work. And, um, and, and, and not only are we connected by our passion to do this work, but there's also an emotional attachment to it. And it's just like our own experience being black and brown men in this country and in public education. You're addressing issues and challenges at the system level, at the school level, at the individual level, and at the individual level, I mean individual teachers and individual students. What are you doing specifically at each of those levels that people can join in getting behind with you? I, I, thank you, Big, great question. I think at the, at the highest level is advocacy, advocacy, just making sure that our states are uh, creating the kind of policies that are opening doors for teachers of color, particularly male teachers of color, where school districts should have uh, an actual DEI plan where they are targeting and working on making sure that they have diversity on their staff. And so far for the listeners out there is making sure that they are aware of what policies are in place or lack thereof in their particular school communities and uh, be a voice behind that. I mean, calling your, your representatives, calling your senators and saying, hey, you know, there's great work happening in Tennessee and other areas where school districts are held accountable to. It just isn't enough to say, well, we can't find any people of color. Well, what is your strategy? What is your plan? Because we know we all benefit from diversity, particularly for students of color. Uh, and then at the, uh, I guess at the middle level for our school, uh, school administrators, educators, and those who are leading this work, um, either through uh, public schools or charters, hey, you know, you, 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 are have, you have a unique opportunity right now, particularly with, uh, you know, ESSA funding and other op funding opportunities out there to yes. create, create teacher pipelines, create supports that are unbiased and grounded in research about what 
um, what you know how how to create these spaces and learning institutions where uh, all teachers can thrive, particularly male teachers of color who are coming into these ecosystems and these environments that are particularly dominated by white females. So how do we create these structures where we can have real ongoing dialogue about how to make these spaces work for everybody? And then uh, how do we partner with folks like Man Up to make sure that we can actually recruit, uh, uh, train and support these young men as they become career educators? Um, and then I think at the, you know, at the teacher parent level is that, you know, all teachers need great coaching, all teachers need great support, just as they need structure and, and help and uh, support and assistance with developing and delivering high quality lessons. Uh, especially now more than ever, our teachers need help, support and guidance on how to take care of themselves, self help. Uh, you, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, if, if your well is empty, you can't, you know, you can't provide nourishment or, or quench anyone else's thirst. So you have to, we have to make sure that our people are well and that they have some sense of uh, self care and, and taking care of themselves. Um, and then uh, too, for our parents, you know, um, we just finished engaging our parents in discussions about their man up fellows. And for many of them, you know, this is the first time that their child had a teacher, a male teacher of color. And just, it's always interesting, you know, I think to think in 2022 for a number of our kids, you know, our students who are at the elementary level or at the high school level, they may never encounter another male teacher of color. And like, like that can't be okay. You know, and it's, it's, I mean, it's just something is fundamentally wrong about that within the, in the richest, uh, country in the world where, uh, you know, you can go to any institution of higher ed and you can find March Madness is getting ready to happen, right? And most of those teams, many of those colleges that you've never heard of, is going to be at least 50% diverse. They're going to have, they're going to not be all of, of one cloth, one color. So schools cannot be that as well. And so parents to be a voice to say to their uh, schools and their school leaders, like, what are we doing to make sure that our kids are seeing a world uh, in their staff, our staff that uh, reflects the world that they live in? Tell me a little bit about uh, the funding possibilities. We know that there are some unprecedented federal opportunities right now. How do we help schools, districts, states to understand the possibilities and how to use them? You know, I was just reading an article uh, talking about the teaching profession and how many teachers we've lost to project it. And, and it's like over in one study, over yeah. 50 over 50% of the teachers saying they're considering leaving in the next two years. And so when you think about that and think about the lack of a quote unquote pipeline, <clears throat> you can't do school without teachers. We know that the virtual world gave us a possibility, but you cannot replace that human experience in brick and mortar. That's just, I mean, that's the reality. Um, and, and so uh, for, for us, it is um, how do you expect to reach these goals? How do you expect for your missions and vision statement to ever come to life if you don't have quality teachers, if you don't have teachers, human beings in front of those classrooms or the content who are able to make connections with their students and deliver that content in such a way to where your kids can be at or on grade level by the end of the year. You need teachers. And so it makes sense that you invest in your greatest asset. It's the human asset, the human capital that you have in your district or don't have. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about curricular materials. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the adults who have been responsible for graduation rates that uh, have not served men of color? Yeah. And uh, what question do you think is the juiciest? Um, I think I, I, I like both of them. Actually, I think from the curriculum, the curriculum perspective, I think 
I, I've always believed that the most that if you really want to see what the school believes, you don't have to read their improvement plan. You don't have to read their their data results on their report card. Just walk in the building, and 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 observe. You will see and hear what that school believes and feels. It's a culture. It's a climate there. If they lack diversity, if they if uh, if um, you know if the instruction in the classroom is low level and not rigorous and teachers are doing most of the talking and kids are not doing heavy lifting and it feels very uh i guess i don't know if autocratic would be the word or just it's like all about discipline then you realize that that may be a place where school is not happening for kids it's happening to kids and we need schools that are happening for kids, which means uh, we understand developmentally appropriate practices. It means that we can actually um, create these spaces and the kinds of questions that will allow students to see themselves as being part of the decision-making process, that they can see themselves as being stakeholders in their school. And um, they're able to open books and have discussions about people who look like them and and and, and all uh, from folks for, from their neighbors into, uh, from their neighbors next, next door to their neighbors on the next continent. And we can have open dialogue and discussions and none and, and non judgmental kinds of ways, unbiased kinds of ways. And I think we know that that's important. Um, again, I think, you know, it, it's important that when we see or don't see what we believe should be happening or what we know should be happening in schools based on research, then we have to hold people accountable. And there are there are studies that talk about the stated curriculum, the hidden <laughs> curriculum, and then there's that dangerous layer of the invisible curriculum. The, the invisible. That's the one. Invisible chains are always the hardest to break because people are always in denial about them being present in the first place. And it's mm -hmm. typically, um, and too often the ones who see them are not in positions of power to break them. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, Dr. Washington, what has been your proudest moment so far? Oh my goodness. I, I have to say that we defied the odds and we were, we've been able to recruit the, uh, the cohorts every year with uh, uh, with with gentlemen who are aspiring teachers in our applicant pool, uh, who you know if funding were made available, we would instead of being a cohort of thirty, we could potentially be a cohort of forty or fifty. Um, and I'd say go higher. Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We absolutely. Ten, I mean, 10x I, that, Dr. Yeah, we can we can do that. We can do that. And again, you know, it's like you, you asked the question earlier. How do we? Um, you know, why is this work important? And, and what we've said to potential partners and, and uh, funding partners or school districts, you know, this work, I be we believe is, it, it, is, it, it is DEI in practice. It is, if we don't have it on the website, if we don't have it, if you don't see it on the t-shirt, you see it in action. And, um, you know, if, if for us, it is like, we know, that there's an absence of men in, in, of color in most of these schools. So why not then not just with man up, but there are other partners out there. It's just common sense. Like if you want to address this, if this is an area of importance, if it's a need that you recognize that can actually um, improve student outcomes and, and create a, a, a better space, uh, more productive space for your staff, then you do it. You put your money where, the where your mouth is. It is 
literally. I think then I hear you saying one of the things you're most proud of is that you are providing the pathway for people to put their money where their mouth is. And and the success year over year of each cohort is evidence of a growing awareness of what you're doing and an understanding of how to participate and contribute to this success. It's a game changer. Are there any particular stories from your man up cohort fellows that make you smile? Yeah, I think I, I got to think about like call out CJ Harris and then uh, uh, Mr. Harris and Mr. Naganzi. Mr. Naganzi is from Tanzania. His uh, dad is a prince in a village there. And CJ and uh, uh, Mr. Naganzi, they went, uh, Mr. Naganzi invited CJ to his home and um, and they started this project working with kids in, in their particular village. And now they've started a school there. And wow. I think that's, that's phenomenal. Like we got a cohort one fellow and a cohort four fellow working together in Africa and uh, one of the African uh, countries and their uh, nations. And they're doing uh, great work starting a school there. And uh, they're going back in a few weeks to, um, you know, check on everything and continue to build it out. I'm proud of that. Uh, and I'm also proud of our fellows because, you know, so our fellows who we who were aspiring teachers and, um, you know, three years ago, you know, they, we started this and, and we still have over a 93% retention rate after the second year. Uh, and that's, those numbers are far different from most. That is statistically education. significant. That, that kind of retention rate several years in is not seen Isn't in a it? traditional mainstream program outcome. Absolutely. And so we're, we're extraordinarily excited about that. And then also our fellows who are passing the praxis exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've, you know, we, uh, that, that's, that gatekeeper, if you will, I don't know if keeper is a, is a right term for it, but far too many minorities uh, who take the Praxis two or the Praxis core fail it. I think one study I read was 63% fail it the first time. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but we are, you know, our, our numbers are still not as high as they want to be, but we are approaching that 40% the first time, at least there, but we are, we're expecting to get beyond that because we're doing some programmatic changes that are that will give us an opportunity to focus on uh, some of that practice content in uh, uh, in an integrated way where it's not isolated like practice prep, but as they're learning to be great math teachers, reading teachers, connecting it to how they're going to demonstrate mastery and proficiency on the on the practice exam. So well, we could have a full conversation about the barriers of standardized testing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's its own thing. But yeah. the, the intentionality that you're describing right now, that you recognize that as a barrier that needs attention, it, it means that you're, you're putting energy behind it. Right. Dr. Washington, I'm going to pause here. Thank you for your leadership in education. To my fellow educators, thank you for joining me this week. You can find links that Dr. Washington and I discussed in the show notes below or at teachingchannel.com slash podcast. If you leave a rating and review on whatever podcast listening app you use, it will help more educators to find us. I'll see you again soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.